Well, good morning, everybody. I see that you are really embracing the seat change here in the auditorium. One of, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to move this way is so I could be closer to you. And clearly, that is paying off big time. Big, big time. I don't know whether to take it personally or, or what. But it's good to see you here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, I would invite you to open them up. Well, we're going to be in two different places this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 28 for our key scriptures this morning. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, now it's been several weeks ago. Uh, this is a special time for us here at Sonoma Avenue. This is a special time for us here at Sonoma Avenue uh, because for the past several months, the leadership team has been working together and praying and meeting and talking about what we believe our vision for this church is. And we talked about this a little bit, uh, I guess it was three weeks ago now, about how do we find a vision, how do we stick to a vision, what is it that we're looking for when we do something like this. And it's not really a mystery in terms of what God wants for us here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say these words. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what is it that God wants for his people here on earth? He wants them to be and to know the truth. All right, that is what God wants. However you want to dress that up or put that out to anyone, this is essentially what God wants. He wants all people to be saved and to know the truth. What does God want for us to do? Well, he wants us to help that happen. Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is it that God wants for us to do? He wants for us to participate in his work of saving this place, the people that are in it, and helping them all to know the truth. This is what God wants. So we are to go out and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that Jesus has taught us. It seems pretty straightforward. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, the how we go about accomplishing all that, the what do we do, all those questions can be somewhat difficult to answer. And furthermore, we're a small church. I like this being a small church, by the way. We'll talk about that another time. We are a small church. And what that means is that if we try to accomplish everything we think God wants us to accomplish, it can quickly become an overwhelming thought. As an organization, how do we reach everyone and what would it take? Well, what we decided, or at least what I told you we decided a few weeks ago, are these are the conclusions we came to. Number one, and Bonnie, you can bring this up. A church needs to have a vision that is formed by God. Number two, a church needs to understand who God wants them to be so that they can go out and be that. 
Number three, a church needs to understand why they are doing the work of God. What is it that God wants them to do, and why specifically does he want them to do that? And, and number four, a church needs to understand how to do what it is that God is calling them to do. And only then can we confidently go forward with the what. So now this is what we are going to do once we understand all of those things. It would be like putting something together, right? You, you get a box, and inside the box is a box. But the box in the box is not put together yet. So if you want it to be a box, what do you have to do? You have to open the box. And you have to find all the pieces. And you have to pull out the instructions. And then what do you have to do? Is it a box yet? No. What is it? It's a bunch of stuff. So you have to put the pieces together. Does it matter where the pieces go? Totally. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to make a box, right? You're not trying to make some sort of flat object. You're trying to make a box. And so the pieces have to go together in the right order so that that thing that started out as this flat square can become what it was made to become, to be. So we ask the question, how do we figure this thing out? How do we discover and embrace the vision that God has for us? It's such a good question. I'm glad you asked it again. I appreciated it three weeks ago. Today, it's, it's really good. Um, so we looked at it from the perspective of a story. And there are four things that we think people need in order to discover and find and carry out the vision of God. Number one, they need to have confidence. That even though they don't understand exactly what the road ahead looks like, that God is taking them somewhere that he wants them to go. God is going to take us somewhere. Number two, they need to have a sense of connection to God. We need to ask God constantly for help, for guidance. We need to check ourselves against his word and against what he is telling us he wants us to be so that we stay on the right track. Number three, we need to have courage to do things that we are not comfortable with and to know that even though we don't understand how everything is going to work, that God is still capable of doing things, and this is the really good part, <laughs> that we won't understand. You know what I'm saying? And lastly, we need to remember that God has been faithful over and over and over again. We want to be a church, the church that God wants us to be. And we want to do the things that God wants us to do. And we want to do them how God wants us to do them. We do not want to be a church of our own design. Because if we are a church of our own design, we will fail. And whatever it is we're trying to do, it will not work. But if we become the church that God wants us to be, with God on our side, what do we know from the story we have been reading? With God on our side, there is nothing that can stand against us. Confidence, connection, courage, and remembering. That is the road that is going to take us to the place where God wants us to go.
So um, I, I, the, the way that we have uh, been talking and communicating about this, I want you to do a couple things. You're going to get some emails over the next couple weeks, um, some opportunities to engage with the things that we're talking about. Uh, we kind of had to spread this process out for a lot longer of a period than we anticipated. Uh, we, we introduced the concepts of looking for uh, a vision and direction uh, a few weeks ago, and then we had a two-week break, <laughs> uh, which then brought us here today. So what I want to tell you this morning is that um, I'm going to continue sharing with you. The elders are going to have a chance to share with you over the next four weeks, uh, not counting today. We're going to have four more uh, Sundays where we're going to talk about some of the things that we believe God is leading us to. And so I know, I, the reason I say that is, you're going to have to be a little bit patient with, with me. as we. Uh, I know you're always patient with me, but you're going to have to be a little more patient with me as we take our time and go through this and explain to you um, all the things that we think God is leading us to. But before... Uh, we get into all of that. Today we are simply going to talk about the vision statement that we have created for the church. But I want to start out uh, first with a confession that I need to make to you this morning. Um, I have been working in churches since I was 19 years old. Uh, So for 22 years, because I'm now 41, I have either interned part-time or worked full-time for a church. More than half of my life I've spent doing this. And I've been involved with churches that were in all different stages of their life. The the very first church that I worked with was in Eugene, Oregon. And it was uh, during the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And that church was on the verge of a church split, though I didn't really know it at the time. There were things that were sort of rumbling under the surface and people weren't happy about certain things and um, somehow I became a part of that narrative, again, even though I didn't really know I was a part of it. Um, Some older members there uh, were threatened with new members and some very influential people decided that the younger members of the church were trying to steal the church building (laughs) so that they could sell it and run away with the money. True story. I mean, that's not a true story, but they thought that was a story. The fact that it's a story is a true story. Um, So that was the first church that I officially worked with. (laughs) The second church. (laughs) The second church was uh, a, a church plant, which was actually a split from that first church. And I worked with them for a couple more years. They met in a black Angus uh, they met in an a elementary school uh, cafeteria, um, and it was kind of a really neat experience, although you had to go in every Sunday morning and set up everything, which was a little bit of a drag, especially when you are the intern youth minister. You get to set up a lot of things when you're the intern youth minister. Um, it eventually was not able to support itself, though, and join up with another church in town. Uh, I have worked for a church on an unnamed college campus that uh, struggled with being a church full of really, really smart people uh, that was surrounded by college students who were not quite smart on the same level. And they couldn't figure out how to be a family and how to feed themselves at the level that they felt like they needed to be fed. 
And they were so isolated just being in this one place that from my experience growing up, it just felt totally different. Uh, I've worked for a church that had been around a long time and had, no, and had more money than it knew what to do with. It's the only place I've worked where they told me to spend more. I'm serious. I'm serious. You didn't spend enough money this year. You should spend more. Where do you want to take the kids? It's like, well, oh, okay. Jerusalem? How about that? <laughs> I, uh, I've worked with a church that was vibrant and loving, um, yet had some deep fissures beneath the surface. That took a long time to come to the forefront. I worked for a church that really wanted to be a big revitalized church uh, because it had been at one time, but it was weighed down by the weight of its own expectation by unexpected tragedy and by internal politics that kept the place right where it had always been. Here's what I want you to know about all of those places. Are you on that list? Eh, Not necessarily. Sort of. Kind of. Each one of those churches, without question, um, each one of those churches wanted to make a difference for God in their communities. They loved God, they mostly loved each other, and they wanted to do something good for God in their communities. However, each one of those churches chose almost completely different paths to do so. They had completely different personalities, styles. They focused on different kinds of ministries. They did different kinds of things. So even though all of them had the same goal, they all looked completely different. Completely different. If I were to be honest with myself, I think that I would have to say that they all had what I would call, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but what I would call moderate successes along the way. In other words, there were some things that worked pretty well. But they also had or experienced trouble or problems or things that they couldn't get over that often overshadowed the good things that God had done amongst them. Whether it was Satan or sin or bad relationships or a lack of funding or something else, each church struggled fundamentally with something that they couldn't quite get over. And here's the thing. As I think back on my time with all of those churches over the last 22 years, perhaps with the exception of one, none of them fully understood who and what God was calling them to be. Now I want you to think about that statement for a second. None of them fully understood who and what God was calling them to be. And here's what that boils down to. They all, without question, struggled with identity. Now don't get me wrong, they had a general sense again of who God was calling them to be, just like all of us in this room have a general sense of what God is calling us to. Make disciples, do the right things, love people, grow, make a difference in the world. But the problem in these churches was that these general things never translated into a central sense of who they were. So that you were to walk up to one of them and say, 
Who are you as a church? They could not say, this is who we are. Maybe they would talk about their building. Maybe they would talk about their preacher. Maybe they would talk about their youth ministry. Maybe they would talk about some program they were doing. But they couldn't tell you who God was making them. And they couldn't tell you who God intended for them to be. I challenge you just for a second to think back on your own experience with churches. Do you find that the same thing is true? Have you been involved in communities that as much as they loved God and as much as they did neat things, as much as they did try to make a difference in the world, they could not answer that question, who are you? All the churches that I have partnered with have struggled with who God was calling them to be, why they should do some things and not others, and how they were supposed to go about choosing something and then actually go about doing it. And I want you to understand something. It's hard for me to say all of this to you. Because I've already told you, I was at least part-time on staff in all of these places. And this is where part of the confession comes in. I was a part of all of them often helping lead, and so this is not criticism of these places. And if it is, it's certainly directed back at me. But here's the thing. I have never been a part of a community that was really being the best kingdom version of itself. All good intentions, wants, and desires aside. Because again, they all loved God. And they all wanted to do, I have never been a part of a community that was the best kingdom version of itself. Whether I was a leader in that community or more a passenger, I often have become overwhelmed not knowing how to change or clarify the identity of the communities that I have been involved with. And I don't know about you, but when I get overwhelmed and don't know what to do about it, I most often leave it alone. Because that's the easiest thing to do. If it's big and you don't know what to do about it, you leave it alone and hopefully what? It'll go away or something will happen that will answer the question of who is this place supposed to be. And I know that I as a church leader have never experienced the kind of growth that I somehow imagined in my mind I would have. Is that a weird thing to say? Or can you identify with this a little bit? I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. Uh, At a former church that I served at, one of uh, my best friends there was an elder, and uh, we were sitting out on his deck one night, and we were talking about everything that was going on and having this conversation about faith and life and spirituality and church and what we hoped for and what was happening and all that stuff that you sometimes have with people you're really close to. And I remember it vividly. He looked over at me at one point 
And he said, just once, I want to be a part of something that is truly special for God. Now, I hope at this point that there are some red flags going up for you. There should be. This is the way we think, but I hope you're recognizing already, maybe we need to alter the way we think about some things. Yeah? How do you determine whether a church is successful? That's a trick question. It's a trick question. How you determine whether a church is successful. And it's a dangerous situation when you start talking about that. Is it numbers? How many people are there? Is it how much money they have? Is it the facilities that they have? Or is it all those things that makes a church successful? Is it the fact that they have a homeless shelter on site? Is it the fact that they offer a counseling center? Is it the fact that they do all these things? Is it the fact that they teach all these things? What is it that makes a church successful? And the answer is, whoa! <laughs> that, my friend, is a complicated question. What my friend was saying, though, was that he wanted to be a part of a church who knew what God was calling it to be. It wasn't about to him numbers or money or things, although he thought that way a lot of times. What he was trying to express is that he wanted to be part of a movement something that knew itself and was going somewhere. He wanted to be part of a church who knew what God was calling it to be that was becoming that thing through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he desired. I mean, he desired it deep in his heart. All of that just to say that when the elders and I sat down to begin and chart the course for this church, we all wanted to, in some way or another, have a different experience than the one, than ones we have had before. We wanted this to be different. We wanted it to feel different. We wanted it to sound different. We wanted it to be something. And again, it's not about trying to change something for the sake of changing it, but we all wanted to connect with something at a level that maybe we hadn't before. Or maybe at a level that we had just sort of breathed in just a little bit in passing. We wanted to be, we want to be, the church that God wants us to be. So, what did we do? Well, we evaluated ourselves as leaders and the church as a whole. We decided everybody could stay. We prayed, we studied, we discussed things and didn't agree with each other all the time. We had ideas that we scrapped. We had ideas that we kept for a while and then scrapped. We listened, not just to each other, but to God as we prayed to him, to others that we brought in to help us. In the process, we bounced ideas off of a lot of other people just to try to make sure things made sense and that people could get on board with it. And the number one thing we did was we took our time. 
I think I've shared this with you before, and since he's sitting in the front row and said he was going to distract me today. When I showed up on my first Sunday, I preached, we're heading out to the lunch, and what does John Machado ask me? What are we going to do? And look, his hand is already tapping impatiently. He's thinking, Bryce, it's almost been three years. What are we going to do? We took our time. And here's why I, I can only express for, to you why I, this was important to me. Because I felt like in all of these things that I've done before, in all the ways that I've worked and tried to do this and come up with a plan, I rushed it. I have to come up with the idea now. I have to decide how all this works now. I have to have all the answers now. And here's the problem. When I rush things, what is the first thing that gets dropped? I stop listening for God's voice. I start solving problems. I start coming up with solutions. And I stop listening for God to tell me what I should do. So, and sometimes, in the worst moments, I don't even ask Him. Not at all. So all of this time and prayer and listening and talking and praying and praying and praying led us to this statement, which is the new vision statement for our church. And here's what the statement says. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. Now, that may not be the kind of statement you were expecting. <laughs> For one thing, it's short. And it doesn't describe a whole lot. And yet, church, at the same time, it describes a whole lot. In the coming weeks, we are going to talk a great deal about what this statement means for us and how we will use it to help guide our church. But before we do that, I would like to talk to you about some things that are very personal to me, if that's okay. If it's not okay, well, it'll be rude to just get up and walk out. There is a reason why I am excited to be in this place at this time with you. And I can say without hesitation that there is no other place I want to be. There is no other place I want to be. I want to be here in this place with you. All of you. That's a lot to say right there. And there is a reason why I think this vision statement for me is the best one that we could have. Now, for a long time, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible has been 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've been with us over the last three years, you've heard me talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 many, many times because I just love it so much. It is such a rich chapter and there are so many things that I get from it every time I read it. And this is, this morning, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. And here's what Paul writes. 
For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I could sit down right now, but I'm not going to. This passage is powerful because it speaks of God's desire to change us. Now, it's funny. When you talk to a lot of people who don't go to church, if you were to say, God wants to change you, well, of course God does. God doesn't, you just, that's all you want from me, is just to change me, to tell me what I can and can't do. Have you had that conversation before? I have, multiple times. But understand what is going on here. Because of the love of Jesus Christ, God is able to make us into something that we were not capable of becoming on our own. We become new creations, alive with the power of God's love shown in Jesus, His Holy Spirit living in us. And this is only possible, you see, because God changed our entire situation before He changed us. God changed our entire situation before He changed us. Once, humanity as a whole was away from God, separated from Him. We were then as we are now, sinners. But we were sinners without a Savior. We were perpetually jumping for that bar and never quite reaching it. Our hands just brushing against it again and again. But God sent Jesus here to change our situation. Jesus came to change the situation that was holding us captive. The sin in our lives that was keeping us away from God. And so Jesus comes and what does he do? As Paul says, he reconciles us to God. What was once broken apart has now been what? brought together. Jesus eliminated 
the effect of the sin that separated us from God and brought us back into relationship with God. What does that mean? The distance between us and God? Gone. The wall that kept us from being in relationship with Him? Gone. The punishment of death that came with sin? Gone. Do you realize... And I don't know that you ever have. You were born into a world where God had already changed the entire situation for you so that you could be in relationship with Him. And there were people that were born long before us that were not born into that place. That were born into a place where they just had to keep jumping and hope they could reach and experience failure again and again and again. We were not born into that world. We were born into a world with a loving God, just like there has always been, but also with a Savior, the expression of that loving God. Our situation has changed before we even took a breath. Praise God for that. And when we encounter Jesus, when we learn about Him, when we accept that God loves us and wants something for us, when we say, I want my life tied to Jesus, when we're baptized and our sins are washed away and we come up clean with the power of the Holy Spirit, the old self that existed before encountering the love of God in Jesus goes away. Something new is there in its place because in those, that moment we are set free from sin. And with that, the burden that we've been carrying of all these things we can't do is gone. We fall in love with this God who so selflessly saved us from ourselves. And in this love that God showed for us, I love this word, I love the statement, compels us. Compels us to go forward because we want other people to know their life can be different too. It's amazing. It's the gospel. It is life-changing, world-changing stuff But here's the problem. I have drastically sold all of this short for most of my life. I have drastically sold this short. I have known for years that God has made me a new creation. But I limited my understanding of what that meant. Do you know how old I was when I was baptized? I was just pointing to heaven, people. Come on. (laughs) Eleven. I was eleven years old when I was baptized. Okay? And I knew some of this then. I've certainly studied it since then. And I've read this passage as if God made me new one time. He changed me. I was baptized when I was 11, so then I was changed to live the next 70 years of my life changed. 
But it was an event, you see. It, it was something that happened, and then I just go on. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize that that's what I was thinking. I didn't realize that that's how I understood this, but it is how I understood it. That it happened, and now I live. And you know what? I was wrong for thinking about it this way. The truth is that God is always changing me. And the thing about that is, is that is not a bad thing. It is a really, really good thing. God is always changing me. Let me prove it to you. I've been a Christian for a long time. Not as long as some of you, I know, but you're older than me, and there's not a thing I can do about that. There really isn't. I knew all about Jesus by the time I could walk and talk. I've told you before, I'm a triplet. We were born late in my parents' Well, not late, but late to have triplets, that's for sure. They were almost 40, and our church family gathered around my parents. They adopted, uh, they adopted each of us. We were in the church building all the time. We were with people from church all the time. It's not too much of a stretch to say that I grew up there. I always took my relationship with God seriously and I committed to God at a young age. I knew all the books of the Bible. I sang in front of the church. I said prayers. And as I got older, because my dad was in a leadership role at church, I became someone who was seen more and more as a leader. It's like, it was like I was destined to become this. My brother had been a missionary. He had been all these different things and I was just sort of like following in line. As I became, went into high school, I was a leader in the youth group. When I went to college, I was a leader at college. I, uh, the year I graduated, I won two awards at Pepperdine for being a Christian. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I have a plaque in my office that I won for being a Christian. I'm just telling you that so that you know it's official. Now, I became a minister, I married Nisha, and everything took off from there. And I want to make something clear. I knew God, I trusted God, and God helped me through some really difficult situations through that time. Um, But at the same time, I was confident in myself. I knew who I was, I knew what God had gifted me to do, and I was so sure that I was going to do great and amazing things for God. Fast forward to 2010. I was preaching in Antioch and everything was going great and God was really blessing us and I had a great team to work with and there were three of us on staff and we each had our own roles and it was we were doing what we were supposed to do. We knew who we wanted to be. We were working toward all these things and one Saturday morning, the, the, the oldest of us, he was 59 years old, He did a lot of things in the church that just kept stuff together. He was out running on the trails with a friend, collapsed and died. Just just like that. 
And as a young preacher, I have to then get up the next day and deal with it. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. The loss, everything that happened. But within a year, most everyone in leadership had either resigned or stepped way back. And the youth minister and I were left to figure out where to go from there. Those of you who know me know that I threw myself into it. I did the best I could to keep everything being balanced, even though I, you know, had a four-year-old son and a, and a new little boy, and we just, we worked as best as we could, the youth minister and I, to help that church recover from that. But it became clear after a little while that recovery was a mystery. Uh, after Jed was born, he was born later there in 2010, Nisha's health was not very good. And we found out that she had both celiac disease and then later fibromyalgia. Um, and so I can remember the two of us sitting up together when all this was coming down and we were probably both crying. And you know how it is when you get information that you know is going to change your life forever and you don't know what it means and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And we prayed together. And we tried to trust God together, which I think Nisha probably did a better job of that than I did because she's just a better person than I am. But not long after that, Nisha then had uh, to have surgery for some cysts on her ovaries. And the doctor called us just before and he said, these particular cysts, oftentimes they're cancerous. And I did not handle that well. I was afraid, I was worried, I was scared. And I got some really interesting responses from people and someone who was really trying to help me came to me and said, you need to pull yourself together. He said, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a minister, you need to show more faith than you're showing. And that cut me to like the middle, the squishy middle of myself. And I didn't really know what to do with that information. The thing is that I wanted to be more faithful and I wanted to express that faith. But to be honest with you, I was just scared. And I couldn't keep my mind from going places I didn't want it to go. And for the first time in a long time, as hard as I was working, as much as I believed in what God was doing, I started to doubt myself and my relationship with God. And I felt guilty for not being stronger. But I didn't know how to be stronger. In the beginning of 2013, I was feeling depressed and went to counseling for a little bit. They said counseling should be fine. You'll be okay. You don't need anything else. A year later, I went back. They said, well, you need counseling and you probably need medication now because you seem to be getting worse. And... We want this medication to help you. By the end of 2014, I didn't know if I believed in God anymore. I took four months off from work. I told Nisha I wasn't sure if I loved her. I actually wasn't sure if I ever really had. I also said that to her parents. 
That went really great. (laughs) I did not know who I was or what I was going to do. This is going to sound weird if you haven't been there, and it's hard to understand, but I didn't know if I had done anything in my life because I wanted to and felt like I should, or if I had done everything simply because someone else wanted me to do it. I lost 35 pounds in about five weeks. Around Christmas time of that year, I was too weak to lift Jed up to get a drink from a drinking fountain. And to top it off, where I ended up was being hospitalized for two days in a psychiatric ward in Oakland. I took myself to the emergency room because I was just emotionally wrecked. And I remember walking into the uh, waiting room and I'm crying and I look terrible. And there's this one, this is the only time this has ever happened, probably on the face of the earth. There's one other person in the emergency room. And it's this older woman. And I check in at the counter, they're going to send someone out. And I sit down and I was in such bad shape. She got up and moved to the other side of the waiting room because she didn't want to sit next to me. Now, granted, I probably shouldn't have sat right next to her. (laughs) Just kidding. I was was dead inside. There was nothing there. God had changed me. God had transformed me. But in truth, I had only let him do it once. And as I continued to live my life and deal with the things that came my way, I continued to deal with them as best as I could deal with them. And the hole that I was standing in just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I couldn't climb out. Now, obviously I'm standing in front of you today, so I made it through that time. But there's something I want you to know about that. There was no miracle that changed me. There was no bright light or burning bush. It was really only time the patience of my wife, friends, and family that allowed me to discover myself again. And I want to be clear about one other thing. God did not do this to me so that I would. We can have a long conversation about that. God did not do this to me so that I would. But here's what happened. As I started to resurface, I realized that I had understood God, Jesus, and myself in a very incomplete way. Having reached the bottom of who I was as a person and finding not a lot there, my idea of God when I resurfaced had to grow. It had to be different. It had to fill the much larger holes in my heart that were there. And I came to a whole new understanding of who God is, of who I am, what it means to be faithful, and so many other things. So here is the biggest shift in my thinking 
from who I used to be to who I am now. Jesus had changed me once back when I committed to him, and then I had spent most of my life trying to be the perfect image of what I thought everyone expected me to be. Some idealized Christian with plaques and awards that everybody loves and everybody looks up to and everybody thinks is just great. But there was one thing that I had never learned that I wish I had learned when I was like four. I had never learned how to fail. I was great at failing. But I had never learned how to fail. If I didn't meet someone's expectations, I lamented and suffered over it. If I made a mistake, it would affect me deeply. And it would be too simple to say that I was somehow prideful about who I was, because while pride played its role, it was more of the fact that I was terrified of failing in anybody's eyes. And because of that, I played things really close. I didn't take any risks. I did not really ever step out in faith because I never let myself get into a situation where I couldn't control the outcome. But I didn't realize I was living outside of faith. I thought I was doing my best to be who God wanted to be. But there's nothing like hitting absolute rock bottom to help you realize how much of a failure you really are. And there at the bottom, I understood something for the first time. Now, I had known this, but I did not own this. And I do now. God already knew, before I broke down, that I was a failure. He knew that I was not strong enough. He knew that I was going to keep letting Him down. He knew I was going to let others down. But here is what should be the shocking part. God did not want me to hide that from anyone. He didn't want me to hide that from anyone. Instead, what God desired for me was to wear my failure and weakness as my outer garments where everyone could see them. Why? Because... A person who has it all together doesn't need a savior. A person who has all the answers doesn't have to ask anyone for help. But someone who knows they are a complete train wreck needs someone else to come in and take over and fix things and make things as right as they can be. I need to be loved and forgiven for who I am and not who I pretend to be. And therefore, my failure is my story. I can remember early on when I was here talking about this, my friend John, who is still sitting on the front row, said to me, Bryce, you might not want to talk about this so much because people are going to think something's wrong with you. And do you remember what I told you? John, something is wrong with me. All the time. My failure it is, my, is my story. 
And it's a story I tell everyone because it's not the end of the story. The answer to my failure is the love of God that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. J.D. did a wonderful job of preaching on these passages when he was here not long ago. And there's something that really sticks out to me as I read it now. Paul understood that his inability to overcome this thing was a really, really important part of what he needed to tell other people about himself. It was the core of his story. There is something in my life that I can not beat on my own. And because I know that, guess what I need? I need a Savior. But guess what? He's already come. And therefore the failure becomes a blessing because it reminds me that in all things it is God who gives me strength. And when I am weak, I am strong. Church, his failure is his story and God overcoming that failure and making him stronger is the story of the redemption of his life. In every moment, in everything he does. And here is what I know this morning that I didn't used to know. Jesus did not change me. Jesus changes me. Jesus did not change one thing about me. Jesus changes everything about me. And he does it all the time. In ways that I understand and in ways that I don't. And the only thing that keeps Jesus from changing me is me. When I step in and get in the way of what God is trying to do in me. And so I want to, in every moment, embrace that change. I want to embrace it because that change is not from fun to boring. It isn't from free to restricted. It isn't from good enough to gooder than that. The change is from death to life, church. From defeat to victory, from failure to winning, to being al- from being alone to never being alone again, from being weak to being empowered. Church, Jesus changes everything. All the time. 
God's love in Jesus changes everything. So I don't have to pretend that everything is okay. That I have all the answers. That I know what to do all the time. It's not I don't and rarely do I. If I were to tell that story, it would be a story about me. But my story this morning is this. I am a sinner I'm a wreck. But God loves me. Jesus died so that I would not have to carry the burden of that failure. Jesus rose so that my sin would no longer have any claim or hold on me. And now I am different than who I was before I met Jesus. Not just the one time, but again and again and again. Because God's mercies are new every morning. What do we believe as a church? God is changing us. No matter who you are, God wants to transform you into something new. We believe that change is not a bad thing. Oh, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't always feel good. But change is not a bad thing. In fact, change can be the best of things. And we believe that through the love of Jesus, God is not only changing one life, but he is changing all life as we know it. That the love of God in Jesus changes the world. The love of God in Jesus changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see God. The love of God in Jesus changes the way we see everyone else, from our spouses and children to the people at the gym or the grocery store or the guy who sits next to you at work who plays his music too loud. Jesus changes all of that. The love of God in Jesus changes the way we act, the way we speak, the way we treat people, how we interpret the needs of others. Because they don't just need a friend. They need their life to be changed by Jesus. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. And it is that vision that will propel us forward. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, you are a good God who gives us all that we need. God, we are thankful for Jesus who changes everything. God, I am grateful that you have not left me alone. May we be a church that believes Jesus is a difference maker in this world. And that he is capable of changing who we are. In his name we pray. Amen.